Hi everybody, this is Jay from Backstage Pass. Thanks for meeting me here at Epcot today. We're gonna go ahead and walk over to the Land Pavilion and meet up with Mark at Soren, so let's go. Wait, wait, wait. Look over there, is that... Is that Michael Eisner? What happened to the wand? They can't just take down the wand. I mean, that was my wand. Yes, I know, but we had it to be... It was an icon. I know, but... I we... mean, what's next, Bob? Maybe the ears of the Earful Tower? No. I mean, the wand. How could you do that? Now, calm down, Michael. No, no, I won't calm down. <laughs> nah, that couldn't have been Eisner. Let's keep going. And here we are. Did you know that the marquee sign here outside the Land Pavilion weighs nine tons? It's amazing. Well, let's go inside and see if we can find Mark. Okay, we'll just uh, walk down this hall past all these people waiting in line. No fast pass required because you've got a backstage pass. <laughs> okay. Anyway, we'll go down this hall. And you can kind of hear the ride going on. We're supposed to be Mark inside, so let's go through these doors up here and see if we can find him. Alright, I'll just reach over here and hit this switch. Everything's going to be fine. We can get started here in just a minute. All right. Attention, sword passengers. We've had make an unscheduled landing, but please remain seated. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, because I can stand up in midair. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Sorry, folks. We stopped the ride just for a few minutes. My name is Jay from Backstage Pass. <laughs> Thanks. Mark and I are going to do a segment today on Soren, and we thought we'd invite you along for the ride. We're going to start with a little history on what was in this space before Soren. Mark, are, are you out here somewhere? Mark? Hey, I'm up here, on the ride. Oh, hey, Mark. Hey, could you pass up a mic? Sure, hang on just a minute. Hey, little guy, can you pass this up to the guy up there? Thanks. Yeah, just straight up. Hello, hello, is this on? Hello. Oh, boy. I have a joke for you. I have a Just joke pass for you. the microphone up. Who comes in Just to steer yourself out of your bathtub? Robber Ducky! Could I have the microphone, please? Thank you. All right. Thanks, Jay. Hi, everybody. There were actually two different shows that were in this space prior to Soren Kitchen Cabaret from 1982 to 1994 and Food Rocks from 1994 to 2005. Kitchen Cabaret was a vaudeville-type musical show given by audio-animatronic performers with human features about nutrition. When it opened, it was really the only Epcot attraction that resembled anything from the Magic Kingdom, being similar in style to perhaps the Country Bear Jamboree. Hosted by Kraft, the show featured two small stages with audio-animatronic performers. The star of the show was Bonnie Appetit, who began the show very depressed with the mealtime blues, but never fear, she would be lifted from her doldrums by her kitchen band, the Crackpots, a group of craft condiments playing musical instruments. The show wound its way through four acts, with Mr. Dairy Goods and his stars of the Milky Way, the Serial Sisters who sang about the toast of the town, a loaf of bread who played the trumpet, the vaudeville routine of ham and eggs, and the final act, a Latin number with the colander combo and the fiesta fruit. Bonnie, dressed up like Carmen Miranda, descended on a crescent moon with fireworks out the kitchen window. The souvenir shop located by the show's exit was originally known as Broccoli and & Company and offered an assortment of kitchen cabaret items, mostly depicting the colander combo. 
Years before this attraction closed, the product line was discontinued and more conventional kitchen items were sold. Changing information on nutrition and changing sponsors led to the show getting a complete overhaul in 1994. This introduced the new show, Food Rocks. Again, a musical stage show with audio-animatronic performers hosted by Nestle. This new 12-and-a-half-minute show was themed as a benefit concert for Good Nutrition hosted by Food Rapper. The audio-animatronic characters were again food items with human features, this time with the more current musical selections based on parodies of songs of well-known performers. For example, the Peach Boys singing Good Nutrition was based on the Beach Boys song Good Vibrations. Some of the acts used the actual musicians' voices. Neil Sedaka as Neil Musaka, a musical eggplant, a pineapple Little Richard singing Tutti Frutti, the Pointer Sisters as the Get to the Point Sisters, and Chubby Checker as Chubby Cheddar. Throughout the performance, Excess, a junk food heavy metal band, interrupts, detesting good nutrition. Food rapper unplugs them in the end, saying, you guys have been unplugged. Sweets are good to eat, but only in moderation. Most of the characters returned for the finale. Hey, back to you, Jay. Thanks, Mark. And who would have realized that Peta Gabriel was in that? Anyway, so let's talk about the technology of the Land Pavilion's current attraction, Soren. As you probably know, Soren made its debut at Disney's California Adventure in 2001. Soren is the higher tech successor to the Omnimax scene in Horizons. We're taken in hang gliders and immersed in the movie with the smell of pine forests and the wind blowing against us. From the design of the screen to the silent motion of the seat mechanisms, it's an imagineering marvel of simplicity and design. The Soren film uses an IMAX projection system with high-speed 48 frames per second high-definition Omnimax film projectors. That's twice the speed of normal motion picture film. Locations featured in the attraction include San Francisco, Monterey Coast, Yosemite National Park, Napa Valley, Lake Tahoe, Palm Springs, San Diego, Anza Borrego Desert State Park, Los Angeles, Malibu, and Disneyland in Anaheim, with scenes projected onto a screen dome some 80 feet in diameter. The silent mechanism which lifted you into the air to enjoy today's show presented a unique problem for Imagineers. How do you convey the sense of flight to large numbers of people at the same time? Mark Sumner was mulling over possibilities, and he brought his 40-year-old erector set down from the attic, and started playing with possible combinations. After a weekend of drawing and constructing, he had created a simple yet elegant ride mechanism operated on his model by a hand crank, which is remarkably similar to the final ride design. Made of one million pounds of structural steel, 
which quietly lifts 37 tons into position. To add to the sense of immersion for the guests, Disney also employs a unique device called a Smellitzer. The device was created in the early 80s, and the publication Epcot Center Today featured it in a 1981 article. Here's what it said. Disney Imagineers have added a fifth sense to the newest attractions at Epcot Center. The sense of smell will be added to scores of other special effects in a new generation of Disney shows now being designed for Future World and the World Showcase Pavilions. Working with the Imagineers at WED Enterprises in California, Bob McCarthy has developed a Smellitzer machine to add the aroma of everything from an erupting volcano in the Universe of Energy show to the tantalizing smell of a barbecue or the fragrance of orange blossoms. Each will be keyed to a particular show scene to enhance the realism of experiences in the future world and world showcase. Wet designers are collecting scents from suppliers all over the world and blending them to produce the desired effect. So far, more than 300 odors have been tried, but more than 3,000 will be tested before the final choices are made. The Smellitzer operates like an air cannon, aiming the scents up to 200 feet across a room towards an exhaust system. Guests traveling on the moving vehicles will pass through the scene as the appropriate scent drifts across their path. Regulated by computer, the scent can be triggered for a fresh aroma just prior to each vehicle's arrival. According to McCarthy, the use of smell has fascinated the entertainment industry for a long time. Back in the 50s, Mike Todd developed a process called Smell-O-Vision. The idea was to release certain scents into the theater as the visual counterpart was shown on the screen. McCarthy, who worked with Todd on the project, claims there were many problems with Smell-O-Vision. The main problem was that the odors tended to linger in the air, and after a while they all blended together. He said, we couldn't get the scents in and out of the theater quick enough. At Epcot Center, the situation will be different because the audience will be moving through each of the many experiences in each pavilion. Some of the most unusual scents will be in the land pavilion at Epcot Center. Here the visitors will experience tropical vegetation, rainforests, and deserts. Of course, Disney Imagineers will supply all of the appropriate smells. Guests traveling through a farming scene may detect a faint animal smell. In another scene, an orange grove will smell like the real thing. Still another effect calls for the smell of damp earth. Some of the smells will hardly be noticeable to most people. The aroma will be there, but the sensor perception may not be a conscious one. Sounds like Bob had a pretty cool job creating smells for the rides. Not only are the smells on Soarin' amazing, but the movie itself required a lot of special filming. Because airspace inside National Park boundaries is protected, it took several months for the film crew to obtain permission to fly a helicopter into Yosemite National Park. The last time a helicopter was permitted to fly through Yosemite was in the mid-1900s, when a flood had closed the park to visitors. Though it may be hard to see them, mountain climbers in the Yosemite sequence are making their way along a cliff face before the waterfall comes into view. The six members of the Yosemite Mountaineering School spend an entire day before the shoot placing pins for handholds and footholds. While the shot was being set up, and in between takes, the climbers literally hung around suspended from the cliff by ropes. One climber clung to the cliff face for about six hours before the shot was ready to go. Because of the status of Monterey Point Lobos as a marine sanctuary, it took a year to obtain all of the necessary permits to film that sequence. One of the boats in the shot is a NOAA, or National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration boat, whose job it was to monitor marine animal and bird activity during filming. Fortunately for the animals in the film crew, the shot was pulled off without disturbing any of the protected sea otters, sea lions, or brown pelicans. 
The scene in which guests go soaring over the USS Stennis aircraft carrier as it heads out of the San Diego port is unusual because all of the Navy jets and helicopters can be seen on the carrier deck. Normally, the carrier offloads all of the aircraft as soon as it comes into port. When this scene of the film was shot, the vessel happened to be making a quick turnaround and had not had time to offload the aircraft. The USS Stennis is the largest aircraft carrier in the Navy's fleet, weighing in at 97,000 tons, with a flight deck area of 4.5 acres. There's a scene in the film in which horses and riders gallop through Anza Borrego Desert State Park. Prior to filming this scene, the crew was required to hire an archaeological team to perform a biological and paleontological resource assessment. In other words, the team hand-dusted the area from Fonts Wash to Fonts Point, a four-mile stretch of trail, in order to be sure no artifacts would be disturbed by the horses and riders. Towards the end of the shot, the Thunderbirds fly over the horseback riders. Many meetings with Air Force personnel were required to set up the shot. Flight paths for both the Thunderbirds and the helicopter film crew had to be carefully charted and arranged. The jets travel so fast that they would not be able to see the helicopter in time to avoid intercepting its flight path. Timing its departure and GPS location very precisely, the helicopter departed only a few miles from the filming rendezvous point, while the Thunderbirds took off from Nellis Air Force Base near Las Vegas, more than 200 miles away. Lieutenant Colonel Brian Bishop, the Thunderbirds' lead pilot, uses the codename Bebop. The lead pilot for the Thunderbirds may hold his or her position for no more than three years, and Lieutenant Colonel Bishop's participation in the filming of this sequence for Soren constituted his final flight as commander of the Thunderbirds. What an incredible way to finish out your position. So that's it. That's our little behind-the-scenes and history of this amazing attraction. Mark and I would like to thank you. Thank you. Thanks, thanks. Hey, what do you think about getting back to your ride now? Great. Take care, everybody.